Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 282, Better Batteries. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We don't really think about it all the time, but batteries are a part of our everyday lives. Even now, you likely have a phone with a lithium-ion battery in your pocket. Or you're in the car. That thankfully started this morning because you had a working battery. But beyond just functionality, we put these batteries in our cars and in our pockets because we have an expectation for them to be safe and reliable. On the International Space Station, astronauts depend on safe and reliable lithium-ion batteries for everyday functions. These batteries are used to power devices on the ISS such as communication systems, laptop computers, breathing devices, and more. And thanks to some of the work that has made batteries in space safe and reliable, we can have more trust in the battery that's in our pocket. Joining us for today's episode to educate us on all things space batteries, we have Dr. Eric Darcy. Eric has spent more than 30 years at NASA in the areas of battery design, verification, and safety assessment for the rigors of human spaceflight applications. As battery technical discipline lead at NASA's Johnson Space Center, his main objective has been the development of safe while high-performing battery systems with a deep focus on understanding, preventing, and mitigating latent defects that could lead to catastrophic cell internal short circuits. With the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, colleagues, he is a co-inventor of the patented on-demand internal short-circuit device that has provided significant design insights into the cell response during thermal runaway, enabled valid battery thermal runaway propagation assessment, and received the prestigious R&D 100 award in 2016, and was a runner-up of the NASA Invention of the Year in 2017. A man with over 30 publications and two patents, Darcy has participated in audits of several lithium-ion cell production lines across Asia and North America. If you didn't know anything about the importance of batteries before and why they need to be tested, now's your chance to learn more from the best in the field. With that, sit back, relax, and let your mind recharge. Enjoy. Dr. Eric Darcy, thank you so much for coming on Houston Have a Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This is a very cool topic. Um, we've had spinoffs on our podcast quite a bit, but this is a, this is a very interesting one. Uh, in fact, uh, we had this on one of our more recent episodes as as a small highlight in a much you know grander. Um, we we were talking about a lot of topics, but this is our chance to really dive into batteries. Um, something that you've explored for much of your career is is batteries, and I wanted to sort of start there and understand just you know that's something that you're you're very good at, very passionate about, and I wonder where that all started. Uh, <laughs> you you were. Um, you know, you, you went to school for chemical engineering, and I wonder if there was something in your studies that really made you want to pursue batteries, or maybe it came later. So tell me about uh, how you ended up where you are. Sure, Gary. I was interested in chemistry in high school and went into to college. I went to Pomona College, a liberal arts school, 
and got a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry because uh, that was the small school and mm. realized I also wanted to love math. And so I wanted to combine it with engineering. Mm. I took some engineering classes at Harvey Mudd College, a sister school of there, and that led me to chemical engineering at Texas A&M, mm. uh, which is where I got a master's in uh, chemical engineering with an advisor, Dr. Ralph White, um, in batteries. And hmm. uh, it was a, a field of chemical engineering that uh, really interests me because of it introduces, has all the facets or some main facets of chemical engineering. It's got chemical kinetics. It's got the thermal aspects to it. It's got some ion transport. Some batteries have fluid flow. And so all in one simple little package that's in everybody's pocket. It's, uh, <laughs> it's ubiquitous. And yes. so it uh, felt like a very interesting field to, to get into. Very cool. Mm -hmm. I guess it, it, the idea that a professor, that a person actually convinced you, I think. I mean, that's one mm -hmm. thing, right? You might have find it, found it interesting in yourself, but you must have had, I mean, this sounds like there was an advisor, there was a person in your life that really helped you to, and guided you into that, that profession. Yes, and uh, it just got me to dive into that field. And we I did a master's thesis on modeling the lead acid, or actually the positive electrode of a lead acid battery, which is mm -hmm. what's in your car, uh, in two dimensions, which hadn't been done, but it was a big Fortran code and it took forever, <laughs> but finally got out. And the research, some of the research was funded by NASA. Hmm. And so that's in reporting to the NASA customer, that's how I made the contact. Uh, with the battery group at NASA, which the battery group at that time was on the civil servant side, was one person. Oh. And so I luckily got the opportunity to double the size of the battery group uh, <laughs> after I graduated with my master's. Yeah, what are they going to do with all those people? <laughs> um, so the battery group at NASA, what, uh, what were the objectives of the group? Were, were you focused on the batteries helping all parts of NASA, or yeah. what, what was the focus of the group? Basically all manned spacecraft batteries hmm. Okay. on that. So at the time, it was the shuttle days, yeah. I hired in and... 86, and we were actually 87, we were just recovering from the Challenger accident at the time. Mm. And so we were re-looking at all the hazards associated with all the system, but particularly batteries, uh, and seeing what is it that we can do to for more robust testing and verification that the batteries would be safe. At that time, we were mainly supporting the spacesuit and the EVA or the spacewalking tools batteries at that time. Hmm. The shuttle was powered by fuel cells, and so um, that's kind of a, a fluid flow battery um, on that. This, the batteries are batch reactors and they're self-contained. And uh, so we, we had just little applications Mm. And it wasn't until later with the advent of lithium ion that we grew to a whole lot more applications. Okay. So what were, uh, you, you mentioned safety and testing. So when, when you were working with these fuel cells, what were some of the things that you were doing to take, um, you know, was it off the shelf, commercial off the shelf technologies that you were just kind of working with and making it quote unquote space ready or were, was there a novelty to it? What was, what was some of your work in the battery? Uh, yes, the battery? so when I started out, uh, the new chemistry uh, at the time was nickel metal hydride. Hmm. Um, and it, uh, it, had, uh, it was better than nickel cadmium. It had more energy density uh, or specific energy. Um, and meaning that watt hours per kilogram was higher. Uh, so it had a big advantage of that over the, the NICADs. 
And so we started developing helmet lights batteries with that technology hmm. on that. And uh, then that grew uh, to the pistol grip tool. Oh, uh, yeah. We developed the battery for, the, for that tool using nickel metal hydride. Um, and then we waited patiently for the time to go and do a rechargeable uh, battery for the spacesuit, the primary life support system of the spacesuit. Hmm. On that, at the time, it was using a what we call a primary one-shot type of battery or limited cycle life battery. Could okay. could only do tens of, of cycles, and then it would. And then the wet life of the battery, when you pour the electrolyte in, the clock starts. The the wet life would be on the order of less than a year, hmm. um, and so. It wasn't something suitable for a space station application where we'd want the batteries to be parked there for many years. And mm. so we had to develop new technology for that. Interesting. Um, what are the challenges when you're developing these technologies, when you're testing, when it comes to operating in the space environment? What are some of the things you have to consider? Yeah, the thermal aspects are big. Thermal. On that, um, we have to properly insulate the battery or, or protect it from the uh, the environment, mm-hmm. uh, particularly during spacewalks, because from the the night to the the sun shining portions, it can be a very extremes hot and cold. Um, the advantage that we have with batteries is the thermal mass of a battery is pretty large, so it's got a large heat capacity. So it takes a while for it to change temperature. And a spacewalk is typically less than seven hours, and so we try to use that to our advantage on that. Mm. But uh, yeah, um, those mainly the quality, uh, because we are using commercial uh, cell technology, putting it into a battery, and so the emphasis there is high volume production, consistency of the performance. Right. Uh, We want to make sure we use the best cells. So a battery is made up of cells. Hmm. Uh, So a cell is an electrochemical couple. And then you put cells together to form a battery assembly that provides the power and energy for the application Hmm. on that. And so the quality, uh, when we're trying to spin in technology as opposed to spin off, we're trying to use what the consumer electronic industry is using because there's enormous competition in that space, especially back then, to get the best performing battery. And yeah. so we took advantage of that to bring it into our space applications. So NASA typically only designs cells custom for space application when you absolutely have to. Mm. In other words, there are some cycle life requirements that nobody else has. The space station, for ah. example, is is that... It's a battery that needs to operate for 10 years and do nearly 60,000 cycles. Yeah, big requirements. On that. And so the consumer electronic industry doesn't have a cell technology that meets those requirements. And so that's a case where it makes sense. But for the majority of the other cases, it's much more effective to bring in commercial elect- uh, technology, lithium-ion technology, for example, right. or other chemistry technologies. But it's just a matter of, um, I'm, in my mind, I'm equating it to like cooking. You know, you're just using the best ingredients, right? Yeah. They are sourcing the best ingredients to, for, the, for the right recipe that's very mm. specialized for this particular thing, which is human space flight. Right. Yeah. And then in the early 90s, lithium-ion came on, mm-hmm. and it was first commercialized in 91 by Sony. 
and uh, it was a pretty small capacity cell. They, they standardized the cell size to what's called an 18650, which is about the size of a male index finger in, in size, as you can see. And they can make it in prodigious rates. And the consistency was really taken advantage. Plus, you get the advantage of the beta testing that's done by the community. So mm. that if there is a problem with the design, you can hear about it from recalls. And so you get the advantage of all these customers testing this product that you don't get with a custom cell design that's just designed for a space application. Uh -huh. So when you started out, the cell technology was one amp hour. Right, which is a small amount of energy. Today, that same volume cell size cell is at 3.5 amp hours. And you can see over the 30 years how it has progressively gotten better and better hmm. on that. And so it's, a, it's the big one of the big advantages of spinning in that technology on that. At what point did, um, you know, because there was, like, like you mentioned, there was uh, a history with using batteries that were not lithium-ion technology, but as you mentioned, you know, with all these consumers using it, you were starting getting more and more data to have confidence that lithium-ion can be used for space applications. And your, about what time did your group start seeing more requests and, and, and it became clearer that lithium-ion was going to be um, more popular when it comes to spaceflight technologies? Yes, it was in, in the 90s, it was a, a novelty. Yeah. And we were pretty guarded about it. We weren't ready to fly it. Um, sure. First, the advantage over metal hydride technology, nickel metal hydride technology, wasn't uh, compelling enough at mm. the time. And so we just watched it. We did a lot of safety tests. The flammable electrolyte in lithium ion technology presents a special hazard. You don't have that in the aqueous nickel metal hydride chemistry. So there was a big safety advantage with the, uh, the nickel metal hydride technology. Mm. But as the performance got better and better with lithium ion, it, uh, it pretty much was, got compelling, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in terms of specific energy, uh, efficiency of charge and discharge, uh, the coulombic efficiency, as they call it, amp hours in versus amp hours out, was nearly 100%. Mm -hmm. Unlike the uh, the aqueous chemistries that always that have some parasitic or some uh, losses, particularly at the at the end of charge, where you're just not as efficient. You've got side reactions that are producing oxygen and hydrogen, and so it leads to less efficient batteries. Mm -hmm. And so that amounts to weight uh, or takes up energy from the power system that's charging it on that. So we had to get comfortable with the extra hazards. Also, lithium ion has a voltage window that has to be precisely uh, guarded hmm. such that you can't overcharge or undercharge or you will ruin the battery. Unlike the nickel chemistries where there's electrochemical uh, reactions that you can go into and safely overcharge or over discharge and the battery will, will recover. So the lithium ion industry didn't really blossom until the microelectronics industry got so proficient and so small mm -hmm. to be able to control those voltage windows and guard lithium ion batteries and to be able to make them safe on that. So yeah, there's some very uh, good 
electronics and chemical technology in a lithium-ion cell in order to make it safe for consumers. Uh, yeah. One of the devices that makes it, uh, that made it prevalent, and it was this current interrupt device that is inside every lithium-ion commercial cell. And it's an additive that's in the cathode. It's a lithium carbonate, and that electrochemically produces CO2, pressure inside the cell, once the voltage gets into the overcharge mode. That generates pressure and disconnects a switch, this current interrupt device, in the cell header to cut off the overcharge. And so it's a way of passively protecting cells from getting overcharged because overcharge, if it kept, if it kept, uh, keeps going, will lead to thermal runaway. Ah, and that's a yes. problem we're And that's tackle. a catastrophic event yes. of fire, flames, and shrapnel. Yes. Yes. And we're going to get into that, absolutely. Now, mm-hmm. now this, this feature that you're talking about, how did that compare to... Um, to legacy batteries, was it? Was this a? Was this a? No, this was unique to lithium ion. This was unique to lithium yeah. ion. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now, when your group started, uh, when it became more and more clear that lithium ion was going to start making its way into um, hum- spaceflight and human mm-hmm. spaceflight, how did you first start tackling testing this this technology? And and uh, you mentioned following it along and making seeing the progression. What were some of the first things that you were seeing um, in terms of lithium-ion batteries in in spaceflight? What were some of the first things? Basically, payloads or payloads. crew uh, crew request for iPads or oh, that that okay. type of technology. We had to learn what were the safety hazards with new laptops, yeah, uh, cameras. I think the Canon camera, uh, video camera, was one of the very first lithium-ion tools or uh, gadgets that the crew wanted to fly with, and we had to get comfortable with the battery in there, in that device to make sure that uh, we had it controlled as best we could from a thermal runaway hazard event. Okay. Um, now, how did you test the lithium-ion battery? Is this because what I'm trying to lead to is some of these first, mm-hmm. some of these first uh, things that were hap- that were going up in space to where we can start talking about your internal short circuit device, right? Sure. Is, did that come early, or was this was, was this so a, this proceeded? So this, this was proceeded. all okay. uh, in the late '90s, or when we started looking at these payloads. Okay. Early 2000, um, we started having to approve that. The, the crew demanded more and more to stay up. I mean, nickel metal hydride was getting phased out. Lithium ion was taking over mm. at the time. We just had to, uh, the inertia was there. We had to get a handle on it. Got it. And it wasn't until we got to larger batteries with many cells or for the, uh, the spacesuit and its tools inside a high uh, 100% oxygen environment and and all the hazards of the uh, the primary life support system of uh, of the spacesuit we had to pay some really special attention um, mm. on that and at that time this is in the year 2000 to 2010 we pretty much assumed that we could only rely on prevention uh, in order to screen out bad product getting from getting into our battery assemblies. Mm. So we spent a lot of time figuring out what were the best ways to figure out what's the best design, wh- who makes it the, in, with the most con- manufacturing quality, and what tests do we need to do to verify all that 
to make sure that discrepant cells don't get into battery assemblies. And then, of course, that we operate it within its, uh, its design uh, limits, both from a voltage, current, temperature, and cycle life. Hmm. On that. So we pretty much just relied on prevention, and we just assumed that if one cell were to have a catastrophic event, it'd be a really bad day. But you know, at the time, we thought that we could possibly do something else besides the prevention, but it was just a... Uh, a development project. I mean, just R and D folks on that, and um, I have to give credit to Tesla. Uh, they were one of the very first ones in developing their Roadster vehicle, the very first vehicle, hmm. putting the emphasis on achieving a battery that's passively propagation resistant hmm. on that with a large size battery, and so they were able to achieve that for their requirement uh, with some active uh, active cooling on that. And so we wanted to see if we could do it passively. And, and then it really started out uh, getting some emphasis from our customers, our programs, when the Boeing 787 incidents occurred. Hmm. If you recall in 2013, they had two battery fires in the 787 airplane that caused the grounding of that entire fleet for like five months. On that, it made a lot of news, and it was costing Boeing a huge amount to have that. Mm -hmm. And it was because the root cause, after much investigation, was that it was an internal defect, a defect-induced uh, event that doesn't get detected at the point of manufacturing. Huh. Uh, gets put out in the field, and as the battery exercises during field use, charging and discharging, the expansion and contraction of the electrodes during that process causes the defect to move and no longer become latent and manifests itself into a thermal runaway event, mm. catastrophic event on that. This is a, a phenomenon that's plagued the lithium-ion battery industry since the beginning, um, and it's, uh, with good manufacturing, it's on the rate of about one to five million to one in one million. If a battery manufacturer has his processes under control, they can expect uh, one in, in a million to one in five million of these events occurring for all the cells they produce. Well, when you're dealing with laptops and you're dealing with small batteries, it's something that you can deal with. You can... Uh, throw away the battery or move away on that. But once you start being in a confined space of a spacecraft with a, lot, a battery that has many, many cells, thousands of cells, uh, you can't use that approach anymore. Right. How, how prevalent are these, uh, these battery fires? Is this something that we even have to worry about nowadays? Yeah, it's a good question, Gary. Uh, as I mentioned when a battery manufacturer, a cell manufacturer, has his quality control in line, the risk is about one in a million to one in five million. But when the processes don't work well, any, any manufacturer, even the reputable ones, can have a bad day, a bad week, and then the risk will get down to one in 100,000, or even worse than that. And that's when recalls occurs. And over the last 
two years, I can list four different types or even five more different fights of occurrence of recalls with, with electric vehicle manufacturers and with uh, ground battery uh, ma uh, test, test system, energy, uh, battery energy systems. Mm. Those are the big trailers that uh, support the grid oh. uh, during the night in order to level out the, uh, the, the power demands on that. And so, yeah, some of these failures have been very catastrophic, taking many firefighters many days to put out. They're megawatt-hour type of battery systems uh, that, uh, that take that are very challenging to put out yeah. on that. So they these are very prevalent. And then every couple months, you will hear of some battery fire, or every year, uh, you'll have several recalls um, of these electric vehicle uh, batteries or ground station batteries on that. So it is a very uh, prevalent uh, failure that we have to deal with. So this was a, you mentioned that this, this was an issue. Uh, it was identified in the manufacturing process. When did it become apparent to introduce some sort of test after the manufacturing um, to have some level of confidence? Um, was this something that your group was started? Was it something that was in industry? When, when did it become apparent yes. to start this? So after the 787 incident, which draw the, the eye of, uh, of NASA and, and particularly the management of NASA, uh, we, and I have to give credit to uh, Chris Ainello of the NASA Engineering Safety Center, and drafting a plan to figure out how to, to go with... Uh, basically reducing the severity of the consequence of this failure, as mm -hmm. opposed to just relying on prevention. So let's assume that our prevention isn't gonna be 100% successful, and we're gonna have this event. How do we protect the adjacent cells so that we become passively propagation resistant, like I mentioned Tesla was doing right. on that with their active cooling. So here, uh, we wanted to do it passively because we want the battery to not only be safe, but to be high performing, because mass and volume is a premium for our applications. So we looked at all our batteries and went into a development program in a big hurry in order to make sure that the battery developed for the pistol grip tool, for the REBA, the rechargeable EVA battery assembly, which powers the helmet lights, the glove heaters of the suit, and then eventually the spacesuit battery, which is called the LLB, the long life battery. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make it passively propagation resistant design. Mm -hmm. And so I have to give credit to the spacesuit program because we were flying lithium ion for about five years, very successfully, um, and did some 25 or more spacewalks with no issues. But the program saw the need to change the design uh, so that it could be passively propagation resistant. And so mm. we pretty much did a clean sheet redesign uh, of the battery, and it involved a very extensive test campaign. Okay. So how did you start that, the, the test campaign? How, like, yeah, how that yeah, go? Yeah, so for the spacesuit application, we wanted to be volumetrically efficient. And the best way to do that is with an interstitial aluminum heat sink in between the cells. Hmm. That allows you to bring the cells really close. You can bring them to, to about a half a millimeter apart from each other 
on that. And uh, in order to do that, the tricky part was, well, how do you trigger thermal runaway in one cell when you've got them all embedded in this heat sink? Typically, way to do that is just to heat them up, put a little heater on that. Well, if you put a heater next to an aluminum heat sink, the heat's going to go right into the heat sink and not go into the cell, and you're not going to be able to drive thermal runaway. Mm. And hence, we had to have a different technique, and that's when the internal short-circuit device really saved the day for, uh, for that. Mm. So I was fortunate. Uh, well, I was very fortunate in 2010 to get a fellowship. It was the NASA Innovative Ambassador Program where I could take a year of leave with pay at somewhere else. And I sold it um, that if I could spend a year with the battery group at the National Renewable Energy Labs in Golden, Colorado, I could learn about how they do things for supporting the automotive industry. Mm. Um, And they could learn from me about how we do things for space. And during that one year, it actually was a nine-month phase, um, I focused in on helping develop this internal short-circuit device. Hmm. So Matt Kaiser at the National Renewable Energy Labs and Dirk Long, uh, we, the three of us together, worked on developing an idea. And I introduced the, the wax portion of it. And uh, we, uh, the wax was the key because we use the wax that melts right now at 57 degrees Celsius, which is a lot lower in temperature to drive an internal short. Uh, So this device is implanted inside. It's a very thin device. Basically, it's a layer of aluminum and copper, these little foils, one Mm -hmm. mil each. The aluminum has a spin-coated layer of wax. It's a special paraffin wax that is mixed in with hairspray wax in mm. order to make it flexible mm. because the, the, uh, these cells, are, their electrodes are wound into a jelly roll. And so the device had to be flexible and couldn't, and so if you just use paraffin wax, it would be stiff and crack and you wouldn't be able to use that. So the device is only about 100 microns thick, four thousandths of an inch, can be slipped into the cell the manufacturers, they're making hundreds of thousands of these cells a day. They would take the, what we call the jelly roll, the dry jelly roll of, of, that's inside the cells, take it off the production line, unwind it, implant the device, rewind it by hand, and then they could re-enter the jelly roll into the production line and finish the, the assembly process. So the defect is now built into the cell. Ah. And it's an on-demand. All we have to do is heat the cell past the melting point of the wax. That The winding tension of the jelly roll would push the wax out of the way when you got past the 57 degrees melting point, And a hard short would develop. And then thermal runaway would ensue ah. on that. So this is a way of creating an internal short without compromising the enclosure of the cell and do it on-demand with a low-temperature input. And that's the key because if you, have, if you don't have this and you're trying to drive a normal cell, you have to drive that cell above 130, 150 degrees Celsius. And you can imagine it's very hard to do that without also biasing cells that are adjacent to the trigger cell, if you will. Hmm. 
on that. So you end up over-testing if you don't have the cells with the internal short circuit dyes, those trigger cells on that. Okay. The downside is it takes a willingness of the cell manufacturer to implant this device that's going to make their cells fail. And as you can tell, there's obviously some resistance and making cells are going to fail by these manufacturers. But I was able to uh, convince uh, a few to, to try it, and it took about four years of trials before we got confident enough to where we could actually use it in a battery application and, and for, a, for a test. Okay. So we have special versions of the what we call the PPR, the passively propagation resistant batteries that we use for our test. And we substitute the cells with trigger cells in various locations to verify the, uh, the battery will, the design will protect the adjacent cells from that hazard. Hmm. What a technology. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now that, did you, once you, once you, you said it took a while to actually convince folks that this was a, this is an important thing to do. Mm -hmm. Did you see it take off after, after? No, it took a while. It took a while? It, it okay. took a while. Okay. So we invented the idea in 2010. Uh-huh. And we tried little trials. We were hand brushing the wax, and that really affected the reliability and the performance. It wasn't until we spin coated the wax that we got a reliable layer of about 10 microns on the aluminum layer, and it was consistent mm. then, and low profile and flexible that then it was ready for prime time use. Um, and so it wasn't until I got invited to uh, a battery conference in Korea hmm. um, that I was able to convince LG to implant the device uh, in a small batch of their cells on that, in their very high energy cells. Now, I did work with another manufacturer, uh, E1 Mali Energy, prior to that in a lower capacity cell. Um, and uh, we did several trials, and they were, they were uh, it was very helpful. That really, we got to test all four different types of shorts that are possible between the electrodes and the current collectors. Oh. And we made some really good progress there. Um, but in order to be applicable for our batteries, we wanted it in the highest energy cells. Huh. And that's when uh, we got it into uh, the LG cell, and now we have it into uh, the high-energy cell versions of E1 Mali. Um, and uh, we, we now have progressed enough to where we're confident that 95% of the cells that we heat up that have the device will go in the thermal runaway, that we can build very expensive batteries, test batteries, with it for the validation process. Okay. Yeah, yes. this is really this is really getting into the the testing component. That's really what it is. Is your you, what you're introducing is a, a measure of confidence into what what exactly is happening if thermal runaway were to occur, were to occur with the battery, right? Because it would be hard mm -hmm. to do without this device um, to introduce it, but when you understand what happens with the battery with thermal um, runaway. Um, and what is it exactly that, what information are you taking once you have that understanding um, that gives you confidence in the design for space batteries? Well, it's uh, the field of the aspect of prevention and the aspect huh. of reducing the severity of the consequence when it happens. So we 
do as as much as we can in both. Now, this is uh, we use a design for minimum risk approach for this internal short circuit risk mm. because there's nothing uh, positive, or I should say. There's no fault tolerance that you can use. Uh, that's a standard approach that we use for safety. There's no amount of fuses or controllers that you can do. It's inside the cell. And you can't double or triple the layers of separator between anode and cathode because then you kill the performance of the cell. Mm -hmm. It's similar to the analogy is you can't have an airplane with three wings just so in case one falls off. Right, so here yeah, we have to use this design for minimum risk approach, right. and that's where we basically use best practices, robust design measures and test measures, and real focus on understanding what our margins are for safety um, in this. And okay. so, what we're and so it's an, a very extensive prevention, uh, screening the cells, screening the design. Uh, auditing the production line uh, and making sure we operate it within its limits. And that's what we do for prevention. And then to reduce the, the severity of the consequence, uh, we do the PPR test. Mm. And in order to do the, the passively propagation resistance test and to be successful, we have to understand how the cell fails. Right. And thermal runaway is a very chaotic behavior and it doesn't always happen the same way. And so you have to test a dozen times a same cell design in order to get the range of possible behaviors and understand what the worst case is. Mm -hmm. And the phenomena of sidewall rupture is when the thermal runaway doesn't go out the intended design path of the cell's vent, it goes and burns through the can wall or ruptures through the can wall of the cell. Well, that's very hazardous when that happens because then it's a blowtorch towards the adjacent cells oh. in a battery pack and can lead to instant propagation. Hmm. And so we've had in the, in the industry several uh, failures of propagation resistance tests due to not controlling sidewall rupturing. And so it's from these tests where you understand what happens in the thermal runaway. Well, I'm, I'm I think I'm understanding this now is now... Your, your job is to find the best batteries, have the best understanding of what happens in the case of a battery failure and have confidence in the batteries that you're putting into space applications. So it's by introducing this test and putting it into the commercial market, understanding the data that's coming from these commercial batteries so that you can understand what's happening, pick the batteries that make the most sense mm -hmm. for for space applications and feel confident, like for example, you, the, you, you mentioned the spacesuit batteries, mm -hmm. right? You wanted to better understand what you were putting inside. Based on the data that you collected after introducing the internal short circuit device uh, into the market, were there any significant changes made into what went into the space suit battery based on what you learned from understanding more about thermal runaway in the commercial market? Oh, yes, yes. There was? Yes, yeah, sweet. Yes, so we, we started characterizing thermal runaway. Mm -hmm. So we had to figure out a way to quantify the heat of thermal runaway. Oh, okay. So we developed a, what we call a fractional thermal runaway calorimeter so that we can quantify the total heat, but also the distribution of heat coming out of a cell while it's going into thermal runaway. 
So we designed a calorimeter that has a cell chamber where the cell goes into that's thermally isolated from the deceleration bores that capture all the ejecta coming out of a cell and decelerate it and cause it to rise in temperature. That rise in temperature of all the components of which we know the mass and we know the temperature rise because we have lots of thermal couples and uh, thermal sensors, uh, we're then able to calculate the energy yield from that. And so that then is fed into our designs. We simulate the design in order to figure out if we get this type of a heat load, how do we protect the adjacent cells? What heat paths do we have to design in the battery pack in order to protect those adjacent cells? It all mm. comes down to protecting those adjacent cells. Got it. On that. So we develop some guidelines through this process after many failures, many cells and many batteries going into propagating thermal runway. Um, we develop four design rules plus another one for space um, that helps us make sure that we have successful uh, design campaigns. And so the first rule is controlling sidewall rupturing. Then the second rule is uh, spacing the cells out properly and providing a heat path mm -hmm. for the trigger cell or the, the, the cell that's going to have the, the nasty event mm -hmm. such that it doesn't go directly to the very neighbor cell only. We've got to get that spread out. Mm -hmm. The third rule is how do you electrically isolate the cell that's got the internal short? Because that internal short is going to become an external short to the cells that are connected electrically in parallel with that cell. And those cells are going to start feeding current and getting hot when they're feeding that short. So that cell that's got the internal short needs to be electrically isolated. So we have to have a fuse uh, on that cell. Mm. And then the fourth rule is also very important is how do you manage the ejecta of gases, liquids, and solids that are coming out of the cell at a rapid rate that are molten aluminum, molten copper, 1,000 degrees Celsius, and how do you prevent that from accumulating near the adjacent cells and then causing them to go into thermal runaway? Mm. So you have to build a high-temperature path channel that's sufficiently wide enough um, and that can tolerate the heat, the momentum uh, of that ejecta and have it smear out. And then the final rule for our spacecraft uh, batteries is to design the enclosure with a flame arresting vent port ah. so that no flames exit the battery pack. So it all stays internal on that. And that's very challenging to do with the smaller packs where there's a lot less void volume. Mm. Easier to do with the larger uh, battery packs. Do you find that there's any uh, significant impact to battery performance by introducing all of these? Yes. There is? Oh, yes. There is. Yeah, there's quite a burden. It's about a 20% mass burden. Wow. In going from a, a design that is not passively propagation resistant to one that is. And it can be even bigger margin um, if you don't follow all those four rules and optimize the materials um, to, to do it. But if you yeah. really what what the community is weighing is that risk, mm -hmm. right? It's just like, is it worth the addition of mass? And I guess it's a in the community, it sounds like it's a resounding yes. Yeah, for the spacesuit battery application, we had a perfectly functioning battery. Uh, we ended up reducing the amount of cells or energy in that battery. 
uh, we went from 80 cells to 70 cells in order to achieve a PPR design. Got it. But it was worthwhile to the program, and I felt it was the right choice to make in order to have a safer design, particularly yeah. for that very critical application. Yeah, I would think the community would be. And, and so in terms of, um, you know, w- with losing all of those cells, do you know about how many hours of performance was shaved off? Yeah, so the original battery had about a nine-hour runtime. Uh-huh. And so now we're more like uh, seven and a half to eight hours of runtime. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So about yeah, an hour. So hour we're and really kind of close to seven hour spacewalks is kind of the limit. So we don't have as much margin as we used to. Got it. Okay. For, yeah. for runtime. We but have, we traded it for safety margin. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. so uh, let's just let's talk about that safety margin, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have an impact on the performance. It's about an hour, hour and a half that you're losing. But when it comes to the safety. How do you measure the, the increase in safety? Well, that's a tough question <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's it's relatively uh, subjective. Um, okay, interesting. Because, uh, yeah, it's the, the risk of having a catastrophic thermal runaway right. uh, eliminated. Um, it's, wow. It's, it's, it's really important, um, but I can't really put a metric on it. Uh, if that's what you're asking. Um, yeah, yeah. No, well, maybe not numbers, but but I think that right there captures it, that risk eliminated, right? That's really it. Correct. Yeah. I mean, specifically with large batteries where there's thousands of cells, each cell has a one in one million or one in five million chance of going through. When you've got a thousand cells or more, you've really increased your risk. Yeah. And so it's really critical for those batteries to... Uh, have that design feature so that we can tolerate one cell going off. Mm-hmm. In essence, it's more of a check engine light problem phenomena when it occurs mm-hmm. as opposed to being a catastrophic failure, okay. such as like the 787, where one cell went off and then it propagated through the entire battery mm. on that. Okay. Now, you, had, you introduced this technology, having a lot of confidence in the design of your batteries. You already, we already talked about the... Um, we're, we're talking about the improvements made for safety for the batteries inside a spacesuit. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it really took off, at mm-hmm. least in the space community after that, right? Yes. I mean, we're seeing, I know the, the upgrades on the space station batteries were a huge deal going from nickel hydrogen to, to lithium ion, right? I'm sure you saw a lot of that trend, more and more lithium ion batteries in in space. Yeah, I mean, the, a really big impact was on the Orion spacecraft. Orion? Okay. Yeah, so we tested the Orion battery. At the time, the battery design used the large cell approach. Uh, the cell was about 40 amp hour cell, prismatic, like a brick type of cell. And they were put in package very closely together. And in fact, that's what's going to be flying on Monday is that battery design. Yeah, we're recording that. this just a couple of days ahead yes. of Artemis 1 launch. It's very yeah. exciting. And cool, your battery so is it, it's, it's a perfectly performing battery, but it does, it does not achieve the PPR um, safety uh, requirement. Oh, okay. But we accepted that because it's an unmanned mission. Ah, okay, and that's just for Artemis 1. Just it for cha- Artemis 1. It when we go to Artemis 2, got it. completely new battery design that does achieve the PPR requirement mm. with a smaller small cell approach, small commercial cells. Okay. On that. That and were extensively tested and demonstrated to achieve 
the PPR requirement with trigger cells using the internal short circuit device yep. as the the trigger. And the elimination of that risk. Mm-hmm. Now what now those Orion batteries for Artemis two and beyond with, with crude missions, what are you looking at in terms of performance, in terms of um, like how long they Well is the they actually perform better. Um, no way. Yes. And that's uh, Mainly because, like I mentioned earlier, the consumer electronic industry is so competitive, and especially now with the electric vehicle industry that's really taken over the demand, yeah. for high performance, for higher runtime. Uh-huh. And those cells are better in terms of specific energy than the cells that are in the Artemis One uh, design. Ah. So the, the cells that are in Artemis One design there, it's an older design, but it achieves about 140 watt-hours per kilogram. Hmm. The, the little cells at the size of your index finger, the 18650s, are about 270 watt-hours per kilogram, hmm. as you can see. So uh, a factor of almost two um, better. Wow. And, and so with that, we could afford the burden of achieving PPR and still have a net positive in performance uh, with that. That's really exciting. Yeah. Like that, yeah. it, it's probably uh, it's probably really exciting in your world, right? That you you're, you're you're trying to focus on the safety. You got all these demands and requirements on performance, but the industry itself is acceler- is excelling so quickly, as you mentioned, with with increases in demand and and uh, especially with EVs coming becoming more and more popular. Um, that that performance now you, now you can you can achieve that PPR. You can also have the performance you need. I mean, you're getting the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> That's yes. pretty great. Yeah, and so after Orion, we then went into the other programs um, and helped them achieve this, uh, this PPR uh, design feature nice. uh, on that. And so we just kept improving and getting better and trying to reduce that burden, both in mass and volume, uh, for, uh, for achieving the PPR design Wow. on that. So it's uh, yeah, and I have to mention the uh, the internal short circuit device has been critical in helping achieve that verification. Yes, with um, a design, well, a feature phenomena or the the response helps us get a the happy medium between an under test and an over test risk. Hmm. So you don't want to overtest by overheating the adjacent cells or doing a a thermal runaway response that wouldn't happen in the field. Right. Or one that is uh, under reports, or I should say under responds, and gives you a more benign response. So we want to replicate the credible failure that happens in the field Mm -hmm. very rarely. So it's difficult to to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but with the internal short circuit device, we're able to achieve that. Uh, was able to get uh, one company, uh, Cooler Technology, to become the exclusive licensee uh, for. And so now you can oh. buy the uh, cells with the internal short circuit device or buy the device uh, from this company. Yeah. And that's an enabled uh, some spinoffs. Uh, so that's helped uh, battery verification in automotive industry, uh, power tool industry, even medical aircraft, EV tolls, on that. So other folks, commercial folks, now are able to do the same type of verification that NASA does mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that they, uh, their batteries will tolerate a misbehaving cell in their battery. It's got to feel pretty good 
to work so you know you spent a year right with some colleagues making that device now it's it's something that is that this idea of transferring the technology over from government to commercial and seeing it in mm-hmm. applications in so many different industries that's got to feel pretty good as as an accomplishment for you know, making batteries safer, and especially as as battery batteries are um, becoming, as you mentioned, they're, they're, the demand for lithium ion batteries is is up there. You know, to know that you're contributing to understanding, you know, more about these battery failures, the thermal runaways, to contribute to safety upgrades for mm-hmm. for batteries. That's got to feel pretty good. It does feel great. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, and just to go back, uh, if you can imagine. When we came up with this device, I mentioned the difficulties in talking these manufacturers to putting this device in their cells. Yeah, you said it took a while to, to convince them. Yeah. yeah, to get them to misbehave. A lot of them, their reaction was, what? You want me to do what to my cell? <laughs> And uh, particularly with the international barriers, and so it, it, right. it was challenging. So one of the keys to make it attractive and compelling is we had to develop a database or of their technology or other or other competing technologies and how they on data provide them data that they didn't have. Mm. So with this device, we could then test it and understand their failure modes, and then go back to the manufacturer and then show them unique data. And part of this unique data is the uh, X-ray videography that we could get from synchrotron, testing at synchrotrons, um, where you could see at 2,000 frames per second with X-ray videography, the cell misbehaving into thermal runaway. So we learned a lot about that phenomena that dynamic uh, effluent going, coming out of the cell. How does the internal short develop from a point throughout the cell? Mm-hmm. How does it vent out the cell? We looked at uh, the feature of a bottom vent. We saw that it had big advantages or significant advantages in reducing the violence of thermal runaway. Mm-hmm. So we could go to the manufacturer and show them, hey, look at this, uh, this design feature. Of course, it's up to them to adopt it or not, but having that data allowed us to be attractive to this mass manufacturer Mm. to listen to NASA, who's only going to be buying then 10,000 cells or so, which is less than a couple minutes of production or less than an hour's production. And so it was a real battle for us because we're such a small portion of their market share in, in production. And that. So if we had some compelling data or data that they didn't know uh, about their cell design, uh, we were able to share share that with them. Yeah, it was less as like a like a customer feedback sort of thing, but more of a what you were identifying was with, with this with that, that that's incredible data. The X ray, you know, the X ray footage and and the, such. Um, fine frames, right? You can identify the path, and you can make improvements to your to mm-hmm. your battery for the whole production line. That's really it. It's yeah. really it's not just for NASA. This is for your whole. This is for your whole gig. Yeah, yeah. And so there's an interesting story of this. Once we invented this device and got the word out, uh, the University College of London, who had who has got really good imaging techniques for batteries, CT scanning, and so forth. Mm-hmm contacted us 
uh, wanting some cells with the internal short circuit device because they had access to the synchrotrons mm. on that. So a PhD student named Donald Finnegan at the time contacted Matt Kaiser and myself, Matt Kaiser at uh, National Renewable Energy Labs, mm -hmm. and uh, we partnered up and got them some cells. They took some amazing videography at uh, 2,000 frames per second. We could see the device uh, going into an internal short, the fluidization of the layers of the electrodes, and then propagating throughout the cell and then the, the jelly roll ejecting out of the cell. It was it was fascinating Whoa, to see. And cool. it was the first time anybody had seen that before and it really captured the eye. And then we saw that this is a way of testing design features inside a cell. Ah. Uh, what can, if we go with a lower flammability electrolyte, what does that do? If we put a bottom vent in the cell, if we put a thicker can wall in the cell, and now what we're looking at is what if you put plastic current collectors? Oh, fusible plastic current collectors. So that look has a lot of promise from what we're seeing in the data uh, to be able to tolerate internal shorts. So that's been our focus lately um, on that. So you're not done then. No. You, you, yeah, mm -hmm. you want to keep making improvements. And, and that's really, is that really your focus is to continue with the improvements to really just understanding things for safety, for battery safety? Yeah, I mean, the holy grail in batteries is if we could eliminate that catastrophic failure, the, the thermal runaway aspect, oh, with yeah. a cell that still performs like the current cell technology, without a, a penalty in mass and volume, yeah. or at least a penalty that's less than 20%, which is the burden to have a PPR battery design. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have a net positive if you could do that. Yeah. So that's what we're looking for. And so there's all sorts of development going on in solid state. Uh, batteries right. uh, where you don't have the liquid electrolyte. Um, there's all sorts of development in lithium metal anodes that get rid of the graphite. Right now, lithium ion has an anode that is made up of graphite. And the graphite has these intercalation areas where the lithium ions go in and out. Well, that costs volume to do that. Mm. And so if you could eliminate that graphite and just go with pure lithium metal, there's a big um, volume and mass advantage to doing that. Huh. But lithium doesn't like to recharge very well. It forms dendrites, which poke through the separator and cause hazards and, and shorts. Mm. So it doesn't have good cycle life. So uh, new types of technologies in terms of the electrolyte and the layering uh, next to the passivation layers, next to the lithium metal have to be developed to, uh, to make that work. Uh, on that. There's a lot of research uh, in there. As you can imagine, with the push for electric vehicles, push for EV tolls, there's a lot of incentive to getting to higher performing batteries. And so it's in my 30-year career, I've never seen as much investment in R&D and batteries uh, as there are today. Wow. And, uh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, and the, the world of batteries is so many people want to be portable and so many different applications. It's a very fast-growing field. And like I mentioned, uh, when I started out, the battery group was uh, two people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've now grown to over 10 people. And then with support people and our uh, testing area, and so we, we're many more than that. And we uh, stay very, very busy. I bet. Yeah, especially mm -hmm. if you said uh, it's it's uh, you know, we're at a 
phase of testing and demand that hasn't been seen before, that, that, uh, that need to have smart folks that are working on this is, is very apparent. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems like it's really important, uh, and we'll sort of end with this idea, is the, the insertion and the collaboration. What's interesting about your, your work, Eric, is um, your immersion into the commercial industry. Um, to understand for space application, I mean, you're you're you had this uh, the the program where you were able to go away for a year and work with commercial industry. You're working like you're you're talking about uh, under, like gathering all these data from from multiple different companies uh, to understand like thermal runaway. I mean, it's you're embedded into this whole industry. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of the government and commercial combination, right? That the idea of technology transfer, the idea of of working together um, to understand this. Uh, this seems like something that I think I, I think your perspective is especially um, interesting on because of your immersion throughout mm-hmm. most most if not all of your career. Um, can you can you and with thoughts about that? This idea of NASA and its importance in embedding itself in commercial industry to better batteries? Yes. Um, we have strict requirements. We have confined space in spacecraft. We get a chance to push uh, the edge of our knowledge of the risk. And we get a chance to do fo- things and pursue um, improvements in detecting defects that other folks don't get a chance to do that. And mm-hmm. so we are helping in developing a lot of uh, not only prevention techniques, but also this uh, technique of reducing the severity of the consequence. Uh, and so we're very privileged for that. And so I think it, it's an onus on us to spread the word uh, to as many people and as many as industry as possible uh, to get the, the benefits of that. And so I feel very fortunate. I'm super fortunate to have some great folks uh, working in the group. That's the thing that I love about working at NASA is you get a lot of folks that all their lives wanted to work for NASA. And, yeah. and so you get some very highly motivated folks uh, with unique talents and, um, and a real drive. And so that, that's what's really kept me for 35 years here at NASA. It's just... Uh, uh, and, and the projects you get um, because of that uh, are f- just fascinating. And in the world of batteries, you get involved in nearly every program. So <laughs> yeah. I get to see you know, almost every program. And wow. it's, uh, you, you feel like, and it's quick turnaround in terms of your impact mm-hmm. because it typically takes two to three years to develop a battery. I mean, I've, we did the pistol grip tool in nine months. That was a superhuman effort. But we, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so our feedback loop is short and we get some good feedback and, and, and satisfaction from, uh, from making an impact yeah. on that. Very, very fortunate. And like I said, it's uh, very blessed to have some very talented people working for me. Well, very yeah. cool. Yeah, and yeah. Of, of course you're going to share all this knowledge with with these folks, and and they're they're going to take their passion, take it to the next level. Like you said, you're not done, right? Mm-hmm. You said you're not done, so there's just a lot of cool stuff to do, and your impact is is very apparent. Eric Darcy, thank you so much for coming on Houston with a podcast. This was so cool, mm-hmm. um, just to understand um, the impacts on space flight and just the batteries that we have in our pockets you know we're making making things better one one day at a time one year at a time so appreciate you coming on thank you gary thanks for having me 
Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Eric Darcy today. Uh, We are coming on the back end of our Mars series, if you've been listening to our podcast. It was an 11-part series. We we sort of rebooted it after doing it back in 2020 and 2021. Wanted to do it all in a snapshot, and part of the reason was because I myself uh, actually took some leave to be with my family. I just had a a new son and took a couple of weeks, so I wanted to make sure that we continued uh, giving you some content. We thought it would be smart to reboot that series, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Now we're back with our regular scheduling programming, and uh, I have a special outro for you because the thing is, we recorded some of the content that you're going to be hearing throughout 2023. Some of it was recorded in 2022, and this episode um, in particular was recorded back in August. Um, A lot has happened in the battery world since then, and so for this special outro for you today, we actually are calling Eric Darcy from the phone. He's out in Colorado uh, skiing, but wanted to take some time to be with us today and give us an update because there's been some progress in this field. Eric, thank you so much for coming back for this special outro. Yes, thank you, Gary, for having me back. And it's, it's great to hear from you. Yeah, that's right. Congratulations on your son. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I really, I wanted to focus on, on the batteries because, uh, you know, we, we had this conversation and it was very detailed. But the thing is, there's been some progress. I know originally you were planning on retiring, um, but you stuck around to, to see some of this innovation through. So I'm going to pose this question to you just to sort of catch us up on everything that's been happening over the past couple of months. Um, what near-term battery innovation do you think would most benefit battery safety, and what is NASA doing to advance it today? Yes. Uh, so, Gary, we've made a lot of progress in verifying the safety merits of plastic current collectors uh, in last year, over, over the last year. And uh, just wanted to give you some more details about what NASA has been doing there. Um, we have, a, like I mentioned, a unique capability uh, to, to get access to the synchrotrons where we can get super high-speed X-ray videography of cells uh, while they're failing, while they're being driven into thermal runaway, such as with a, a nail. And so by high speed, I'm talking 3,000 frames per second, hmm. uh, which really allows us to go real slow motion uh, with these. And we're able to see the fusible action of these uh, current collectors so let me back up. A current collector is part of an electrode. It's where all the current uh, collects and gets driven and outputted to a cell, uh, a lithium-ion cell, for example, and to go work in, in a battery and provide work. So the current collector, once you convert it from metal, which is what the current technology is using, copper and aluminum, if you convert that to polyester, and metalize both sides of it with a very thin layer of copper and very thin layer of aluminum, you now have plastic current collectors that are thermally unstable when an, a defect internal short event occurs. That means it acts like a fuse. And the benefit of that is that it will vaporize and isolate the, the defect that's causing the hot spots short inside a cell from the rest of the cell, which allows it to tolerate a nail penetration. Uh, 
uh, hmm. metal nail penetration, which is uh, unheard of because all current lithium-ion technology immediately goes into thermal runaway, or wow. nearly all. A very violent uh, reaction uh, with fire and flames and lots of ejected gases and, and molten uh, metals and, and, and all sorts of liquids and, and so forth. And it's a it can, it can lead to some very catastrophic events. So thanks to our team that's uh, able to go to these uh, synchrotron, we uh, are going to, we just went to uh, one in Grenoble, uh, France, and um, we were able to fire off some 129 cells. Uh, nearly half of them were, had the plastic current collectors, and we uh, were able to test them. And, and in fact, our results uh were 37 out of 38 uh, cells that we penetrated with the nail over uh, 2022 tolerated the nail. It's hmm. unheard of uh, for us uh, in lithium ion with a flammable electrolyte uh, to have that tolerance. So I just wanted to share that with you. I think that this is the most impactful battery innovation that has a low barrier to adoption by cell manufacturers. Because we're not asking them to change the electrochemistry, we're asking them to change an inert component, the current collector, uh, with a plastic uh, current collector. And so it has some weight advantages, but really the big one is the safety advantages. And so the, the big thing that we're doing is trying to understand how it works so that we can develop confidence to get these big uh, cell manufacturers that do high-volume production to produce uh, batch, small batches of these cells and give it a try and, and get us to uh, a point where maybe they will adopt them and uh, be able to mass produce these cells for the benefit uh, of the entire industry uh, worldwide. That is, and, th- and that's really why I wanted to have you on, Eric, is because what you're talking about is a an extremely significant update from, from our last chat. You're talking about, I mean, we, we already talked about the advances of the battery industry, but this one can truly be, can make batteries just safer across the board. And I'm thinking about the phone in my pocket, right? I'm thinking about um, the, the safety of, of even, you know, if, if something were to happen and something were to penetrate the battery that I could feel that much safer. So Eric, thank you so much for taking uh, time from uh, from skiing to, to talk with us. It's a, it's, a, it's a significant update and I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. All right. That was Eric Darcy again. Thanks for uh, for coming back. Now, if you're sticking with us and uh, for 2023, for the upcoming episodes, I want to pitch this next one to you because it's a big one. Um, we are going to be announcing the new crew for Artemis II, the four astronauts that will be traveling uh, to the moon uh, as part of the Artemis mission and returning uh, to the lunar vicinity and eventually leading to boot prints on the moon. But these four astronauts, we are uh, have an opportunity to chat with. And so if you stick around for next week's episode, you'll get to hear from all four of those astronauts. You can go to nasa.gov for the latest on that announcement and really everything NASA, nasa.gov slash podcasts if you want to listen to our full collection or check out some of the other uh, podcasts that we have across the agency. If you want to talk to us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on whatever platform you want to ask a question or submit an idea for us Uh, Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. 
thanks to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jaden Jennings for their help in the production of Houston We Have a Podcast. And of course, thanks again to Eric Darcy for taking the time on the show, for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.